children, and they let me do this work, and uh, many times it takes away from them, and so I hope that uh, in the small bit that I do this morning, I'll be able to give back to them, so thank you guys. I want to start with a little bit of trivia about myself that uh, even probably Lance, who I've known for 18 years, doesn't know. So my name is Noah Joseph. Anyone know what that translates into in Spanish? Noel, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. My Spanish name is Noe Jose. So, and I work with Spanish speakers who... who uh, if they don't speak English, they don't really get it, but my friend from Mississippi, he, uh, he, he likes to use that one a lot, so Noe Jose it is. It's really a privilege to be with you this morning, uh, to serve in this way, uh, and this morning we'll continue our study through First Peter, and we'll be in chapter 2 once again, and we'll be talking about verses 11 and 12. I know that's a surprise to you. I usually end up with whole books or like 40 verses or something. This morning we only have uh, two verses that we'll be working on. And so one of the best ways to start looking at those two verses is to take a step back and look at what Carson so skillfully delivered to us last week. And so last week's passage was much like a pep rally. It was kind of like the, the, pre-game, the pregame rally where everybody gets pumped up for the, for the kickoff. And so you can imagine some of that's even going on now as these two teams prepare for the Super Bowl. And so their, their coaches and their staff are reminding them of big wins that they've had throughout the year. Uh, deficits that they've overcome, and how they've silenced their critics. And, and, and last week's passage kind of had that feel to it. It sounded like this. It, says, it said, once y'all were under God's judgment, but now you have received mercy. Y'all, were, uh, y'all are being built up into a spiritual house. Y'all are a precious and chosen people by God. Y'all are a chosen race. Y'all are a bunch of royal priests who have the privilege of telling the world about God. Y'all were in darkness, but he has called you into his marvelous light. Y'all were a bunch of individuals with no purpose, but now you are God's people called by his name. And so this is the part where the team, you know, busts through the team banner and runs out on the field and everybody goes crazy. But our passage this morning has a different feel to it. It's it's like being in the halftime in the locker room when you're down 40 to Tom Brady and the Patriots. And so all the adrenaline has worn off and and real life is setting in and and you feel like staying in the locker room a few weeks until March Madness begins. It's not good. It's heavy. And so read with me uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter knows that his friends are suffering. He knows that they're feeling crushed. And so he begins with the love of God. He knows they're being persecuted. And he's just painted this really beautiful picture, kind of like a rainbow. But they're standing in a downpour of adversity. And, and he knows that they need hope. He knows that he needs to give them perspective in the middle of all that they're experiencing. And so verse 11 serves as a transition point in the book. And he moves from all these great truths about Christ and and what he's accomplished for his people to helping those people to see how to apply those truths into their day-to-day relationships. And so the second half of the book that Peter 
has written, uh, it seeks to explain how God's people live as they are on their journey to heaven or as they wait for heaven to come to them. And so Peter addresses these folks as beloved in verse 11. He comforts them with the fact that they are loved, and surely he intends to communicate his love to them, but more than that, he intends to communicate the love of God to them. He knows they're hurting, so he starts with God's love. And this is, this is not simply like an a, a introductory word, but it's a statement of fact that builds on what he just said before, all those great truths about who they are. They are accepted children of God, loved by God. And so what he says next is a bit lost on us because we don't use the word sojourner or exile very much in in our day-to-day language. But these are huge biblical concepts that carry a ton of weight with them. And so first let's consider this word sojourner. And Peter uses this word to denote a group of people who are living in a country that is not their own. Many times this is because of circumstances outside of their control, whether it's famine or persecution or drought or war. And our category of refugee would lay over nicely onto this biblical category of sojourner. It denotes lack of permanence, lack of possessions, lack of heritage, lack of social position. It represents a people in transition, a people on the way from one place to another, a people on the edge of greater society, minorities, a third wheel, and uncomfortable immigrant people. And this should make us think back to how God's people, Israel, lived in Egypt for 400 years as sojourners. The second word is similar, and it could also be translated foreigner, but here the ESV translators choose to translate it exile, and I think that's a a good translation. And this is because of how Peter started this letter by noting that his hearers have been dispersed into different places. And this is seemingly... By God's choice, God chose to do this. So God has taken them to the places where they live as foreigners or exiles. And we also see that in the conclusion of the letter, Peter will say this funny thing. It will say that the letter is from she who is in Babylon. And Peter here looks back to the time when God took his people out of the land of Israel and sent them into exile through conquering nations of Assyria and Babylon And he punished the disobedience of the people by forcing them into exile. And we'll see in a bit that God's intention for this current exile is is, is missional, not punitive. So he has this great purpose that he's working in their current exile. So God has taken his people, all types of people, not just Hebrews, and put them in all types of places, not just Jerusalem. And none of them are at home, even those who live in Jerusalem, like Peter. The two words sojourn and exile, together here they paint a picture of a group of people who are out of place, not where they are ultimately supposed to be, a people who are worn out from wandering and ones who are waiting on God to show up and deliver them. That's what Peter is after with these two words. And so it's from this vantage point that he now urges them to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. So because you are now living in a place that is not your home, because you are on the edge of culture and society, because you are seen as less than, because you are oppressed and minimized, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And a misreading of this verse could leave one feeling as if God's saying, don't come home and make sure you don't have any fun. 
And this is a common misconception of God, that he is an unloving killjoy who wants to keep people in their places. If you're here this morning, and that is the God you imagine, I'd like to introduce you to someone. Earlier in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he said this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then over in 1 John, which we studied last year, in the first chapter also, John says this, That which you have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our or your joy may be complete. And so God offers his people full, complete, inexpressible joy through relationship with him and his son. The salvation that we've been afforded, it overflows to us with immeasurable joy. Our our God is a joy monger. He's advocating expressible joy through salvation in Christ for all people everywhere. Do you know this God? Do you think of God as a joy monger? Does your salvation in Christ well up in joy? And if not, why not? So that lens changes this reading for us. Rather than abstain from fun, it tells us to pursue joy. What then does Peter mean to abstain from the passions of the flesh? And the best way to answer that question is to look at where Peter says something similar in the same letter over in chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. At the very least, he is saying, don't live the way you used to or the way your neighbors still do living for what they can squeeze out of this world by giving their bodies whatever it demands through misdirected sex, misdirected celebration, and misdirected motivations. They misdirect their worship, is what he's saying. So hear me clearly, uh, my friends who are in Christ. If you drink, sex, party, purchase, watch, exercise, eat, or work, because you think they will give you life or relief from your suffering, that is idolatry. You are taking good things and making them gods. Peter says, stop. But I think Peter has more in mind than just these things that he's mentioned in chapter four, verse three, because he gives other instructions that are central to the Christian life. And and over the next few months, we will hear Peter say through the rest of the letter things like this. Submit to governing authorities, harsh bosses and faulty husbands. Love imperfect wives and brothers and sisters. Don't deceive, revile, murder, steal, meddle, or be greedy. Don't dress up the outside while leaving the inside unaddressed. Be humble, tender, gentle, and respectful. Pursue unity, sympathy, and love. And all of these instructions are connected to 
our passions and desires. And if our desires and passions are not submitted to God, if we don't put away and kill those passions that are contrary to God, we have much to lose. And so Peter personifies these passions and says that they war against our souls. So these passions and desires, they're not your friends. They want to kill you. The passion that says, look again, the passion that says, just one more. The passion that says, keep arguing, you're right. The passion that says, you don't need to respect that person, they're not respectable. The passion that says, no one will see. The passion that says, I will love them when they love me. The passion that says, God doesn't want what's best for me, he doesn't love me, I can't trust him anyway. These all want to kill you. And if that wasn't enough, look with me at 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And let me be clear here. This is not uh, some hyperbole language. We actually have a real adversary who actually wants to destroy you. Christian friend, there's a war going on inside of you, and there's an adversary outside of you. You are being hunted and sniped day in and day out. Your very soul is at stake, and many of us live like we are at home on staycation. Peter says, no, you are at war in a country that is not your own. You are a foreigner who is being stalked. Your, your mind has to be kept sober and ready for action, abstaining from these desires that want to kill us. So what passions are you listening to? What passions are you following? And how is your adversary devouring you? What do you need to abstain from? And, and, and what does it mean for you to engage in this battle for your soul? Some of you might be sitting here today saying, I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a war happening, and I didn't know that I was being hunted, but it's happening. And the question is, will you engage in that battle? And so I want you to do something for me. I want you to take out your phone. Most of us have phones these days. And I want you to send yourself a text message with a single word that will prompt you, because you're going to forget everything I say when you walk out the door. It will prompt you when you get home and you sit down to check Instagram or whatever it is you do with your phone, it will prompt you to do something. So what is the thing that you need to do to engage in this battle? Send yourself a word. Remind yourself. If you don't use a phone for that kind of thing, write it down. But if you don't engage in that now, you're not going to engage in it later. So what I'm trying to do is to set you up for later so that you'll actually spend some time thinking about this. My dear friends, many of you feel like you are living in a battle every moment and you feel harassed by spiritual foes and you, you feel like you just don't fit where you work and you feel out of place and the way you look at the world and the way that you think about things is completely different than your family and your friends and, and many days you have this deep longing just to go home but you never really arrive there. 
And when we seek and follow Christ, this will always be our experience until we finally get home. You're supposed to feel the way that you feel because you're not home yet. And when we see him face to face, when this body is made new and the war against us is completely over, he will say this to us, come in, sit down, eat with me. And all of our wandering and all of our wandering, it will cease and we will find rest. And so my biblically informed imagination makes me think that when I arrive in heaven, I will sit at table with my Savior. And I will have a long talk with him. And I will take a nap in a place that he prepared for me. Friends, this battle is worth it because our souls are safe with Christ. So abstain from these passions that live so naturally within you and within me. I beg you, fight for joy or you will be laid to, you'll be laid to waste. You'll be destroyed. Our souls are at stake in all of this. Paul, or Peter moves forward in this next section. In verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter moves from the phrase, I urge you to abstain, to the phrase, keep your conduct. In verse 11, he is being clear about what not to do and why. And here in verse 12, he wants to be clear about what to do and why. 11 seems to to speak of our uh, internal self and our desires. And 12 seems to speak of our external self and actions that spring from those desires. And he tells them, that their honorable conduct among their unbelieving friends and family and their neighbors and the society as a whole, it has great weight. We should understand honorable conduct as those things he will lay out in the rest of the letter. So he's setting us up in these verses to talk about the rest of the things he wants to tell us. And you'll notice them as we study them in the weeks to come that they're all in relational context. Home, work, court, society, church. These are all about relationships. And his insistence that they will be spoken against as evildoers, it tells us that those relationships are pretty tenuous. At this time, Christianity was the new kid on the block in the religious world. They didn't have temples. They were a weird mix of of Hebrew and Greek. They worshiped in homes. They They ate their teacher's body and drank his blood. They weren't obeying all the laws the Jews were prescribing, but they also weren't doing all the things that their Greek neighbors were doing. And so you can see how they were being slandered and misunderstood. And we can suffer the same types of slander and and misrepresentation. People say things like this, pro-life people hate women, pro-Bible people are unintellectual, Jesus-only people are narrow-minded, all of which are untrue. Peter's prescription for this slander is not to form a, a moral majority, or build a museum, or make bumper stickers. He says, keep your conduct honorable and let your deeds be good. That's how we respond. 
with honorable conduct and good deeds. Notice that this prescription has a, has a twofold result. First, he says, those outside the faith will see their good deeds, and second, they will glorify God. So this honorable conduct is among, the, among those believers is where they can see. He says, let them see you submit to the government. Let them see you love your spouse. Let them see you suffer well. Let them see you hope in Christ's return. Let them see you wait for heaven. Let them see you serve in a hard work environment. Let them hear your gentle words. Let them experience your love. And so we have to ask ourselves, can people see our honorable conduct and good deeds? And so this is a two-part question. Are there good deeds to see? And are there people close enough to see them? Some of us have plenty of good or plenty of people around us, but what they see would not fit into the category of honorable or good. Others of us have conduct and deeds, but no one to see them. And it has to be a both and. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to be holy and invisible or visible and and unholy. It has to be both. So this is why I said our passage this morning is like being down 40 to Tom Brady at halftime. Now you football nerds are like, how are they down 40? A lot of two-point conversions. They are getting whipped. Because you're thinking this. This is too much. I can never win. I'm at war with myself. The devil wants to eat me. I'm living in a world that's not my home. I'm, I feel lost. I'm worn out. I want, to, I want to give up. And those around me, they don't understand me. They misrepresent my Christian life as evil doing. And now you're telling me to push my life further out there, to live in public before people who will accuse me, to leave the little bit of comfort I've built up for myself and welcome people into my life that I can't trust? Oh yeah, and I need to get busy stopping doing all the things that I shouldn't be doing and get busy doing all the things that I should be doing. How can I do this? It's too much. And so at halftime, when you're down 40, it's hard to remember the pep rally. In the middle of suffering and failure, it's hard to remember who we are and whose we are. And so let me remind you of a little something. You are not alone. These instructions that Peter is giving are not to yous, but to y'alls. He's saying, y'all do this together as a people, as a spiritual house, as a priesthood, as a family, as a body. And we are not alone. Because we have a captain, and he has Tom Brady's number. And the second half is his. We have a savior king who has already won and we are just waiting for the clock to expire. He has done everything we need for our salvation and he is coming again to bring it to pass. This is a fact. And that fact motivates us to live as his people in this world. And if you don't believe that fact, you won't live. But there's more. Look at how Peter ends verse 12. He says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says that when we live this visible, honorable conduct, good deed-filled life among those who don't believe, that they will glorify God on 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 the day of visitation. And this is Peter's way of saying that God will work in some and they will be saved. 
And so it would be tempting to read this verse as a pronouncement of judgment, but there's good reason to read it as speaking about salvation for those who were once opposed to us. Look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice the similarity in language in these two verses. From chapter 2 into chapter 3, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Exact same language. And this is an example of what he's talking about in chapter two. The picture is of a wife who takes a God at his word and loves her husband. He sees her conduct and trusts God. God wins the husband over via the conduct of the wife. Peter gives hope to all of us by highlighting what can be one of the most difficult situations a Christian can experience, disunity with a spouse at the most essential level. And this gives us hope to live as people who are visible and vulnerable. God wants to work in our most difficult relationships and circumstances. And so how how will God use our well-conducted sojourning and exile here? He tells us he will visit and win some to himself. Husbands, wives, neighbors, family, bosses. Heck, who knows, maybe even those at the highest level of society. Look at the end of Second Chronicles with me. The very last second, uh, section of Second Chronicles. This tells how the people who were in exile in Babylon, how did they finally come out? Look at this. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Lord of the word by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This is an unbelieving Gentile dictator king. And this is what he says. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up. And then if you read down in uh, Ezra, same page of your Bible, read down Ezra, the exact same thing is said again, and it tells us that he sends them out, and he tells all the people who are their neighbors and live, who they live among, give them stuff so that they can fund rebuilding the temple. This is crazy. Absolutely crazy that that's how the exile ends. So what is the end of our exile here? What should we expect God to do? God stirred up King Cyrus. He moved. So what are you expecting from God? How are you expecting God to stir up? And how will he use your suffering to reach people for his glory? What are you begging God to do? What are you expecting of God? A bunch of us meet here in this space on Wednesdays at noon and and we fast and pray that God would do something crazy like this in our time. Would you come and pray with us? Wednesdays, 12 o'clock, right here, fast and pray and ask God to do something crazy that we haven't seen yet, that we aren't even expecting him to do. The thing that we are choosing to believe this year as a church is that this is all worth it, and this passage has that right at the center of it. Our sojourning in exile is worth it because God guarantees our homecoming in due time. Fighting for joyful joyful holiness is worth it because our souls are at stake, but ultimately they are safe with Christ. 
Living well among our neighbors is worth it because God will use it to win some of those we love. All of this is worth it because in it we fellowship with Christ in his obedience, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So uh, now that uh, New Year's is over and our resolutions have all failed, uh, what will you ask God to do that you can't do, not your plan, but his plans for you, what will you ask him to do? And the rest of this letter is going to press us and push us about how we live. And to live the way that God wants you to live, you will need his spirit to stir you up. You'll need his work to do it. You can't live as God would have you live in your own strength, but by the power of his spirit, he will work in this body of believers to make it look more like Christ. So, when you get passed over for a raise you deserve, it's worth it. It's worth continuing to serve. When your teenager is disrespectful, it's worth it to keep patiently loving her. When your roommates don't notice all that you do to keep the house up, it's worth it to keep caring for them. When your president says or does something you would rather he didn't, it's worth it to keep praying for him. When you want to win that argument with your spouse, it's, it's worth it to be the first to apologize. When your coworkers misrepresent your faith, it's worth it to lovingly disagree. When your fear tells you not to speak of Christ with those close to you, it's worth it to mention his name and to share his hope. The writer of Hebrews gets to chapter 12, and he says something uh, that should be ringing in our ears right now. He says in verses 1 and 2 in Hebrews 12, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked to joy and fellowship with his Father to walk through the cross. It's worth it to follow and imitate our good King. Brothers and sisters, God is not asking us to do anything that he has not done himself. Christ lived as a man with nowhere to lay his head, he sojourned among mankind, his, con his conduct was honorable, his deeds were good, and he was killed for them. He was rejected by his own, he suffered exile on the cross for sins that were not his. And in doing so, demonstrated his love for all who would see. And we glorify God because of it. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a way to remember all those things as a way to celebrate and remember Christ's death that gives us life. And at North Wake, the, the Lord's Supper is open to anyone who has made Christ the Lord of their life and is walking in fellowship with him. And if you're not sure about that, use this time to pray and ask God to help you believe all this stuff that we're talking about right here. Before you come to the table, take a moment and reflect on your sinfulness and need for Jesus' work on the cross. 
Then remember all that he did there to set you free and to bring you home. And as you come to the table, I want to ask you if you would come using these two aisles. So come home using these two aisles and go back home using those two aisles out there and this aisle here. Most importantly, prepare yourself. Think about what Christ has done. Remember him. On the night which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples to eat. And as he did so, and as they were eating, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, we do this to remember and proclaim Jesus' death for our sins that gives us life. Come and eat. Savior say thy strength indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray 